Like nothing is all white, nothing is all black. You know, even the darkest moment has a, a flicker of light in it. And, and the most high, amazing potency, brilliant moments have their little shadow speck in there, right? And like that, and shalom really means that, total completeness that acknowledges everything. Welcome to Perennials, a podcast about growing up, getting wise, and trying to live a good life. I'm Victoria Russell. In today's episode, I'm talking to Lisa Rappaport. Lisa was raised by an atheist, sociologist father, and an agnostic mother, and she really yearned for a spiritual home in her childhood. And she spent a large part of her early adulthood seeking and exploring spirituality. And in her 30s, she eventually converted to Judaism. In her 40s, she decided to get on the rabbinical path. Lisa is an educator, both Jewish and secular, and a rabbinical student in the LF ordination program. She has a blog entitled My Jewish Path, which follows the 29-day journey of spiritual preparation for the Jewish high holidays during the Hebrew month of Elul. She's also the mother of two lovely, talented, and spirited daughters aged 11 and 15. I think that Lisa's story is one that's really helpful for people like myself who are interested in spirituality, who have a lot of curiosity, but who don't quite have a spiritual identity or a spiritual home yet. And sometimes it can feel like I'm never going to find that. But I think that Lisa's story is an example of how if we are patient and we keep our curiosity and our desire, and if we remain open and we trust, one day we'll find that we've been on the path all along. I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. Lisa, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. When I met you a few weeks ago in Colorado, I asked how long you've been in training to be a rabbi, and you said, well, kind of my whole life, and I thought that was a great um, answer. I was thinking about how we talked a little bit about your background, and I was thinking about how we often hear stories of people who are born and raised in religious Households, and then they later rebel and like totally reject religion. And you kind mm-hmm. of, it sounds like, had the opposite experience. Is that right? Your parents were both atheists? Um, I, I think at the time that I was growing up, they, looking back, I don't think my mom was an atheist. Um, but I think my dad was. He was much more of a politically oriented person. But it's interesting to, you know, because I think I did rebel in a way because I craved a spirit, a spiritual sort of ritual feel filled home. Mm -hmm. And I didn't have that. I mean, not that I actively rebelled and, you know, fought, you know, why don't we have religion in our house? Um, But that's something I always wanted. So it is kind of that dynamic of like your people are kind of craving the thing that they don't have in Mm -hmm. their in their background. But um but yeah, I grew up without any religious education or spiritual tradition, um, very secular. I mean, we had Christmas and that kind of thing, but in a very secular um, way. But it, it's always something I craved. I don't think I could have articulated it then that I was craving that. Um, but it's very clear by what happened when I went to college that I was searching and dabbling and, you know, taking Native American spirituality and looking into Eastern religion and you know, ending up in yoga classes and doing Tai Chi and, you know, reading spiritual poetry and um, just really searching and Mm -hmm. didn't find my 
true path until much later. But yeah, it was clear that that was something that I wanted and needed that I didn't grow up with. And you grew up in California, right? I grew up, um, actually, it's kind of interesting. I did spend a little bit of time in Colorado. My parents moved around a lot. They were 60s hippies, so <laughs> they were kind of motivated um, kind of by the political climate that was going on. So I felt like I got a lot there. And actually, Judaism, which is my chosen path now, has a lot around social justice and um, activism. So I feel like I got that piece. But um, I I would say from second grade on, I grew up in California, but we moved around a lot within California. Mm. And as a kid, you felt you were saying you did feel some sort of kind of longing for like tradition and ritual. Do you think moving around made you crave some sort of stability? I, I didn't like moving around so much. Um, yeah, I think that all of that kind of goes together, just having some kind of stable, consistent, predictable rituals and traditions. And then, you know, moving on top of that just kind of made me feel, I think, um, a little bit displaced and not really quite sure what my my origin story is, maybe you could say, or, um, you know, what, I mean, I knew where my grandparents came from and my ethnic sort of makeup, but I, I don't really feel like I had a strong sense of what the spiritual ancestry was. Mm. I mean, it's interesting. My, my grandfather's Italian Catholic and he, this is probably where the breakdown was. He renounced his Catholicism to marry my Protestant grandmother and so, and actually, when I did end up going to a Catholic funeral for my great uncle, I found myself very drawn to the intensive Judaism and and Catholicism have a lot in common in terms yeah. of high ritual. Mm -hmm. And I found myself being like, "Whoa, what is going on with this um, procession and the frankincense, you know, burning frankincense?" And I, I, I thought that was pretty cool, and I thought maybe that's my path. Um, but Christianity never really had a strong hold for me. But I, I can remember that I was very taken with the ritual that was going on in Catholicism that I did not find in more Protestant um, Christian settings. Um, and so my mom grew up like minimally, you know, religious. Um, and then she, you know, she's a product of the 60s. So I think there was just a lot of rebelling against all kinds of organized things. Um, and, you know, spirituality does not have to be organized. I think that's one of the things people are starting to understand is that religion and spirituality are different and that you can still have ritual and tradition and a spiritual compass that doesn't have to be a dogmatic religious thing. But I think that's what my parents were rebelling against. Um, and, you know, who knows? I might not have liked it if we had, you know, some kind of rigorous organized religion going on in my house. Hard to tell. Yeah. And so it was in college that you really got to explore spirituality um, mm -hmm. in a deeper way, it sounds like. what. So before mm -hmm. that, like when you were a kid and in high school, did you just kind of, you didn't really think too much about it or? I found myself being jealous of my friends who, mm -hmm. not that I necessarily wanted to go to church, um, but, you know, I, I would go with friends if I spent the night at their house. Saturday night, I would end up going to church with them. And... Um, it, that didn't speak to me. And I had some interesting experiences um, going with my friends. Um, maybe if, if that comes up later, I can tell you a story around that, around why I know that Christianity was not my path. But 
I found, I just found myself being very envious that there was this thing that their families did and they would go to church and they had, you know, a minister that was kind of their spiritual leader. And I didn't really understand what all that was, but I missed that, you know, how come we don't have that? Why aren't we doing this like everybody else? And I didn't know anything about Judaism at that time. And I grew up in small towns and I don't think I met any one Jewish until I got to college, actually. Mm. Do you think that politics served that function, politics and social justice served that function for your father, that function of like giving him some grounding? And... Definitely. Yeah. What yeah. did that look like? I think that was a strong organizing principle for him. And it looked like um, they, my parents had me when they were really young in their late teens. Um, but I would go, you know, there's tons of pictures of me in a stroller at protests and marches. Wow. Um <laughs> And, um, you know, he just, and my dad is a sociologist. He was a sociologist and sociology professor. And so I would just, and I'm much more of an interior person, you know, I have a degree, a master's degree in psychology. So as I got older, we would often kind of debate about, you know, he would say that, you know, everything can be boiled down to sociological problems. Mm. And I would disagree and say, no, it's, you know, our psychology. And so those were always very interesting discussions. Um, but he was always much more global, um, looking at systems and larger organizations, whereas I was more about interpersonal relationships, which I think is interesting because that's part of a clergy profession, which I didn't, I wasn't quite putting all of those pieces right. together at the time, but it's interesting to look back. And that's actually the debate that you and your dad would have is something that I find so endlessly fascinating because I am also someone who tends towards the interior and psychology and kind of that individual journey and individual spirituality. But more and more, maybe also because of the current climate that we're in, mm -hmm. I'm looking at spirituality as a way to engage more deeply in the world while also having a grounding inside of you that is deeply personal yes is that something that you've explored like did that conversation between you and your dad become a little more gray or is that something where you've woven strands of his sociological like systems exterior perspective into your uh, view of your own work in the world or your spirituality yeah I mean that's definitely a major strand and he influenced that. And I think what is wonderful about Judaism, which is my chosen spiritual path is that it has both of those things. Um, you know, you could definitely go on a very interior sort of mystical ethics and values based journey with Judaism and never look at anything else. And that would be great. Um, but there's also so much around activism and tikkun olam and repairing the world but within a, um, a larger religious and spiritual context, like a, a container that holds all of it mm -hmm. versus like, oh, we have to pit sociology against psychology, right? Like Judaism holds both. Yeah. When you were in college and you were in that exploratory um, phase of taking yoga classes and learning about Native American spirituality, did, what was your attitude towards that at the time? Did you did you have a sense of frantic, like, I have to find the answer, I have to find the path for me? Or were you enjoying just being open and learning about these different traditions and paths? 
I, it was not frantic. It was totally absorption. And, you know, whatever I was doing, like, oh, Native American spirituality, this is so cool. Um, you know, it's not like I was going to go try to take that on as, as my own spiritual tradition, but it's like I could see, like, there's some, like, you know, the nature-based principles within that um, really spoke to me. Um, I took a lot of Tai Chi and yoga, and I could see, like, oh, like, here's, like, some more meditative. Um, I think I was, like, creating a toolkit, but I, I don't know that I would have recognized that at the time. Um, but I was just like, oh, this is neat too. Let me add that. And let, oh, now I'm doing this and that's cool. And I remember being in, um, in my master's program. I took a world religions class for the first time, which I think world religions needs to be sort of at the middle school and high school level. Yeah, um, I totally cause I think agree. people just need to be educated i think we had that conversation um i like we would spend a week or two on each of the major traditions in the world and it was like oh i want to be a hindu like this is so cool mm -hmm. you know i i could totally wrap my head around thing next but buddhism so cool maybe i want to be a buddhist um, and the teacher did a really it's really interesting she did an amazing job of um representing each of the different traditions and just made me fall in love with them. However, it's so interesting. And I didn't know much about Judaism at the time, basically nothing. She, she did not sell Judaism in a way at that time that I was like, Oh, I want to be a Jew mm -hmm. at all. Actually. Um, she spent a lot of time talking about it being a religion of laws and legal codes. Mm -hmm. And um, that doesn't sound very exciting. So I was like, Oh, that's weird. You know, um, and, you know, and kingship and, you know, just a lot of the stuff that a lot of Jews actually, secular Jews have a hard time with. Um, so that one I didn't actually latch on to as much and I didn't really think about it. But it wasn't in my like, oh, let me check out more about Hinduism or, you know, Buddhism. That's what I was doing with the other traditions. But Judaism, it's like, mm, not so much. However, at that time, I was married to my first husband who was Jewish, very secular Jewish family, um, who you met while we were in Colorado. Um, so they weren't really selling it in a way at that point either. Um, so it's an interesting time where I, it, that didn't spark for me. Um, mm -hmm. although some things did, so it's complicated, but maybe we'll get there in a different question. You said, um, Christianity, there's something that that has never quite, I guess, kind of resonated with you. Mm -hmm. um, what what is it? Is there something in particular that just doesn't jive? Yeah, the and I you know I don't want to offend anybody who's you know Christian who might be listening um, because the part that doesn't work is the the Jesus part, which is like the main part, right? right? And um, and. I, I again would be so envious of people who would just feel so connected to that and, you know, wear, you know, crosses on their, on their necklaces and just, it was so meaningful to them. And I wanted something like that too. And I remember being at church with a friend of mine cause we did not, I didn't go to church. Um, but she took me one Saturday or actually one Sunday. And I think it was a fairly fundamentalist scene cause the, the preacher or the minister was talking about how people, you know, he was very passionate and he was talking about how at the end of the service that people could go into these different rooms with different people, clergy leaders, I guess, and that, you know, you, you could accept Jesus as your personal savior right then, right there. And it would be this like amazing moment. And I'm like, Oh my gosh, I want to do this. I think I was eight. 
<laughs> and it's like, I, I have to do this. Like, and I was convinced that this would be the moment that like, it would all come together. And yes, like whatever this thing that I was longing for, like it would come together. And I went into the room and the person did stuff and was speaking in tongues and doing stuff. And, and I felt nothing like zero on the radar, just a total zero. And I was so, I remember thinking in that moment, maybe my dad's right. Maybe there is no God because mm. I was sure that that was going to click for me. Um, and that really bummed me out actually. And for a long time, but it's interesting now looking back and I reflected on this when I had to write my spiritual autobiography for rabbinic school. It's like, Oh, this all makes sense now. Like I I'm meant to be a Jew. I'm meant to be a rabbi. And so it totally makes sense that that moment didn't click for me. Um, it wasn't supposed to click for me. Um, just took me a long time to figure out where I was actually meant to be. Yeah, that's really interesting. And it's really, it's really nice to act, to hear that a moment of somewhat desolation at the time for you, it has turned into a, a consolation. Like mm -hmm. that was all part of it. Mm -hmm. um, well, I have another Jesus story too, where it was yeah. like sort of, so I have a, a very dear friend of mine who was actually born Jewish. Um, we went on a trip to Italy together. Um, I wanted to explore my Italian roots. I think this was part of that searching thing. Like, Oh, you know, I'll find out where my people come from. Um, got very into my Italian background and she was a secular Jew just like most of the Jews I know and were in my college life were secular Jews. Um, and she never really resonated that much with her Jewish background. And so we go to Italy together and we're there for different reasons, but we're studying Italian together and we start going into churches because that's what you do when you're in Italy. And again, I was hoping like maybe this will be the moment when I realize I'm supposed to be a Catholic because I think I had gone to the funeral where the, a lot of the Catholic stuff was going on. And I would see people with rosaries and it just, it looks so cool what they're doing. And, but I would go into these churches, like amazing, gorgeous churches and nothing again. And my, my friend who was born Jewish was like having a major spiritual awakening. She has now since become Catholic. It's kind of interesting. We traded, um, <laughs> but she was just like moved to tears and was just like dropping down and like praying on her knees. And I was like, wow, I'm kind of jealous of her because like I want to have that experience and it'd be really awesome to have it like amongst my people in my ancestral homeland but it's like I'm just not feeling it like you can't force it right but that was another very interesting moment like huh like this is where it should all be coming together and it's not coming together yeah and it feels like sometimes when you're searching for that or like you really want it it doesn't happen mm -hmm. um Eventually, I know this is skipping forward, but mm -hmm. was did you have any moments like that with Judaism or was it kind of a slow burn? It was a slow burn. I mean, because, again, when I wrote the spiritual autobiography, which is a fascinating exercise I recommend to anybody. You don't have to be applying to a rabbinic program. It's just a really interesting way to, you know, one through line, like focusing on spirituality like from birth to current moment and how, what that's played in your life I could see like oh like these different things were fitting in and then when I had my you know like asking my current husband like we really need to have a tradition let's go check out the synagogue since you're Jewish and I'm pregnant and 
then it, it was a little bit more like, oh, wow, this is really pretty amazing, you know, because it's like, but wait a minute, I wasn't buying this when, in the world religion class. Like, I thought it was all about laws and, you know, strict consequences and all kinds of stuff. And that's not the, the Judaism I was experiencing the second time around in a synagogue setting with the right rabbi for me at the time. Um, so I think it was mostly a slow burn. And even then, I didn't think I was going to convert or anything. Um, it was just like, oh, this is great. This will be a really wonderful tradition to raise our daughter in. Like, I, I can get behind this. But I had no intention of, like, I'm going to convert um, until a little bit later. So it, it's been an interesting, yeah, I like what you said about a slow burn. Um, n nothing like big epiphanies, you know, lightning bolts coming down or anything. Just like, oh, hmm, this is really beautiful. And, huh, let's do more of this. And let's maybe celebrate that holiday. I mean, I was definitely driving the train in the family, um, pushing, you know, bringing us all along. But um, it was not a big epiphany moment at all. And that's kind of kind of nice to hear, too, because um, if you're always waiting for, like, the lightning strike and it doesn't come, it might feel mm -hmm. like, oh, I, guess, I guess I'm just not going to connect to any tradition, I guess. Or, you know, maybe it's just not for me. But you kind of, um, it's an example of how you can just kind of follow those little twinges of... Mm -hmm curiosity and desire right mm -hmm. yep so in that in the time between college and when you decided to start exploring synagogues what did your spirituality look like then were you connected to a sense of spirituality or a prayer life or anything like that no I mean I definitely at that point in those like college and grad school years was I don't think I would have called myself a Buddhist or a Taoist but I definitely had I don't know if they were daily practices, but pretty regular practices. And then, like, I don't know if you're familiar with the Tao Te Ching. The mm -hmm. I memorized that whole book, which is it's like it's like 81 very short chapters, probably like maybe ranging between eight and 20 lines each. Like each chapter is just this very short but powerful oh, yeah. lesson. I mean, I don't really know what that was about, like why I was doing that. <laughs> <laughs> but I had them all memorized and, you know, you could ask me, okay, what's 14, you know, and I would say, you know, whatever it was. And like, that's really interesting to look back on, like, what, why was I memorizing spiritual texts? Um, mm. But it was, I just, I felt like, wow, there is so much in this slim little book about how to live life and how to view life. Um, that actually, when I did decide to convert, I hope I'm not skipping around too much. Um, and I, you know, I'm really like, okay, we're at the final thing here. I'm really going to do this. And I think there was some line in the packet that I was, you know, just double checking going through um, about relinquishing all other spiritual practices. And, you know, Judaism has a belief in one God, you know, um, can be interpreted in a pretty broad way, but one God, um, you know, which I interpret as kind of a unifying experience a oneness experience um not like one single deity in the sky kind of thing but um but i there is a line in the Tao Te Ching. the very first verse i think says something like the Tao that can be told is not the eternal Tao." the the Tao, something about like the unnamed or the nameless is is the eternal Tao. like if you can talk about it that's not the Tao. Mm -hmm. what you can't talk about what you can't see what's ineffable and that, for me, is what God is. Well, actually, I have many relationships with the word God, but that's probably the overarching one. And I said, 
I need to go talk to the rabbi that's going to convert me and say, this is what I think God is. And if that's incompatible with Judaism, then I might have to think twice about this. I didn't think it would be, but I just felt like at this point in my life, this is my strongest, not definition, because again, you can't really define it, but my strongest inkling of what that mystery is, is Mm -hmm. that the Tao that can be told is not the eternal Tao. Mm -hmm. I just wanted to make sure before I like, like, I'm really going to do this and um, proceeded to have an amazing discussion with my rabbi about how Judaism has many ways of interpreting that experience that we call God, one of which is that whole idea. It's called Ein Sof in Judaism, which means without end, Um, you know, just kind of like an endless, infinite unknowingness um is what Ain Soph is mm. I'm like oh great you know and many other ways of, of conceiving of God um and so I'm like oh actually that's kind of cool that it's like yes and even more right um but I just felt like I need to make sure I'm not you know doing the tradition any misjustice by signing on for something that doesn't feel right that's awesome because i mean part of the reason i've been dwelling a little bit in the weeds of like before you picked a path is just because i feel like it can when you're in that space it can feel so disorienting or haphazard or like i wish there was just i wish i knew like the one i I wish i could i could pick the thing that i that i was going to dive deeper into and Mm -hmm. when you talk about memorizing the text to me it kind of sounds like when you memorize a text it's almost like building a little temple inside Mm. of yourself like Mm -hmm. you don't have the external one to go to yet but if you Mm. have these words inside you you can always go to them for that Mm -hmm. sense of something that is that you can return to and Mm -hmm. and it's interesting it feels like a lot of people do go like who are you know exploring they get drawn like I've had a similar kind of was drawn to learning about Buddhism and reading a little bit about Taoism like around probably around the same time and I wonder if part of it is because I mean for me I did grow up Catholic and there's a lot of quote-unquote certainty you know Mm -hmm. and like rules Mm -hmm. and certain ways of doing things and I wonder if we get drawn when you're trying to kind of explore and open things up and kind of explode your definition of God. It's really freeing to mm-hmm. learn about these traditions where the, like the premise is the Tao that can be spoken of is not the Tao or mm-hmm. um, if you meet the Buddha on the street, kill the Buddha or whatever. Mm-hmm. Like, <laughs> mm-hmm. I remember hearing uh, Pema Chodron, the American Buddhist nun, um, talk about she says if you pick one boat you'll get across the river mm. faster like and she said you know you can kind of put one a foot in one boat and a foot in the other talking about dabbling in different mm. religions and she's like mm-hmm. that's fine but it'll probably pay off to pick a boat mm-hmm. um, do you feel like that's true or does that resonate with you I do because um you know I, I'm people talk about the metaphor of the mountain, right? Like that there's lots of paths to the top and, and the top being that, you know, all of the, the great traditions at their core, at their most mystical, central part of them are all essentially coming from the same place, I think, which is basically loving kindness and, you know, having a connection to a some kind of 
sense of that there's something greater beyond ourselves, that we have great respect for whatever that is, that we give gratitude for our lives and love each other with loving kindness. I mean, I think that you can really strip down all of the great traditions to that. Um, But the paths will speak to people in different ways. And yeah, while I had a foot in Buddhism and a foot in Native American spirituality and Taoism, I think you're right that, yeah, you, you might get up there, you're, but you're kind of jumping into rabbit holes for a little while. And then, oh, let me jump out of this rabbit hole and go down this rabbit hole. Um, for me, and I think it's like a, I've been using the phrase language a lot. Like this, Judaism is my language. This is the one that I understand the, the best, that speaks to me the best. And I don't claim that it's the way. It's just my way. Um, and it's interesting to talk to Jews who have a harder time with Judaism than I do as a Jew by choice, right? It's like, but like I can see that for me, it has everything in it that I need. Um, and this is the path I want to take. And yes, it is getting me along up the mountain more quickly, I think, than um, jumping around. Yeah. So what was it like when you started going to synagogues and feeling that sense of like, oh, I like this? What was it that mm-hmm. you were drawn to? Well, the, the ritual piece was there. So I and I haven't actually been to a ton of synagogues. Um, the, the first synagogue we went to was in our, our little town of Chico. And this is when I was pregnant with my daughter and wanted something. So we stumbled into the synagogue and um, what worked well, what, what can be daunting about Judaism for a lot of people is that it Hebrew is a dominating feature of it. And if you don't know the language, you know, it's hard to, to connect with something if you don't know what's happening. So in this particular synagogue, um, there was a lot of English and Hebrew mixed together. And a lot of, I think, because there were a fair number of interfaith families and secular Jews who just wanted to be part of a Jewish community. So there was a lot of teaching going on at the same time, you know, like, this is the part of the service we're in, and this is why we're doing this. And it just immediately started speaking to me. Um, I was also dealing with um, a fair amount of anxiety at the time. It's interesting to kind of see like where things were coming from. But I think being a new mom and probably there was some postpartum stuff going on in there and I tend to be wired more on the sensitive, anxious end. Um, so I, I think that was, I don't know if that's one of the major features that like, no, that I don't think that was part of why we were going to synagogue. Like I wanted a spiritual life, but immediately I found like, wow, there are some antidotes to the anxiety that I'm experiencing. Mm -hmm. Um, And one of the first prayers that hit me like a ton of bricks, so maybe this was like an epiphany moment, but it wasn't an epiphany moment like, oh, Judaism's for me. It's just like, wow, that is so potent. So um, in the morning liturgy, there's a psalm um, for Shabbat morning, and the English of it, and you would be chanting it and singing it, so that goes in even more deeply, I think, when you're singing something versus speaking it. Um, It goes, um, I lift my eyes up to the hills from where does my help come? My help comes from the unseen one, the maker of the heavens and the earth. And I was just like, wow, there was something about that, that, okay, there's help. You know, again, not coming from a strong religious background, like where I knew how to pray or anything. I didn't know how to pray. in that sort of traditional Judeo-Christian sense. Um, but like, wow, there is help out there and I can't see it. It's back to that kind of Taoist idea, right? Like that, that the God that can help me, the, the energy of God that can help me is not anything I can see. So I have to stop looking in the physical world 
it's something much more mysterious and ineffable than that. Um, and it's from the same place of the, the thing that created the heavens and the earth. Um, like that just seems so mysterious and mystical and cool to me that there is a loving energetic force out there that brought everything that exists into being. And if I can figure out how to tap into whatever that is, that's where like my spiritual sustenance, my help will come from. So that was just in one prayer that gets chanted, you know, yeah. and a lot of people are just sort of chanting that on autopilot, you know, in Hebrew, not sure what they're saying. Or if you grew sometimes when you grow up with something, you don't penetrate it with adult eyes. Um, you just sort of accept it and, you know, you just sort of say it wrote, but like I was so ready and hungry for that idea that it was just like, whoa, that is okay. I want more. Let's, let's keep going here. Mm. And in terms of that sense of an unseen force that is helping, it's kind of interesting. I think I mentioned Richard Rohr to you. He's a mm -hmm. Franciscan who he, he often talks about how in particular Christians often have a sense of God as being like Santa Claus and they ask, you know, they ask for things and then if they're good or bad, mm -hmm. God does or doesn't grant their wishes essentially. Mm -hmm. um, and I kind of think of it in terms of like praying for a certain outcome versus praying for the strength to mm -hmm. handle whatever outcome. Mm -hmm. Is that kind of the sense of help that you seek or that you sense in that prayer? What does that help kind of feel like? Yeah, I agree with you. It's not like, oh, um, you know, make this issue go away, or I want to not feel stressed about money, or, you know, or I want more money or whatever. Um, yeah, it's definitely like, help me cultivate an inner resolve, which would be more of like a Buddhist or you no, know, I guess maybe, you know, like Thich Nhat Hanh kind mm -hmm. of like, peace, like, yes, an inner peace, it doesn't matter what's going on in the outer world. Like, if I can arrive at this moment with some kind of um, inner solidity, you know, even if it's stuff that's triggering or activating, you know, or like that um, Aikido idea of, I did a lot of Aikido too, um, that, you know, the energy's coming, the negative energy, the scary energy, whatever it is, can I just kind of step out of the way and let the energy go by? Like, I don't have to engage with it. So it was kind of bringing together a lot of prior practices that I did, a lot of kind of like Buddhist mindfulness kinds of things, but but in a, a way that I think, like I'm not someone who can do, like I like to meditate, but I, I like don't think I can do a sitting practice. Like Judaism is much more active. You wrestle with things, you wrestle with texts, you have your prayer book, you're, you're in relationship with that, you know, you're davening and praying with communities. It's much more interrelational, I think, um, and active. And I think that was something that was missing a little bit in Buddhism for me, although I love the idea of a mindfulness practice. Um, so, yeah, I think things were just kind of coming together in that moment, like everything that I had kind of already learned. And it's like, the, but in a way that like made more sense to me that worked for how I am and how I'm wired. And to be able to like chant this song with gusto because like, oh, wow, this is really what I want, you know, um, and to be able to kind of belt it out. I never liked to sing either um, in groups or like at all. Like I would sing in my room or whatever, but if I was ever in a situation where it's like, oh, we're going to do a sing-along, like I would just hate that. All of a sudden I'm in synagogue and 
I'm wanting to sing these things mm. like loud and passionately. It's like, whoa, who is this person? Like very different person was starting to be, was emerging. And were you singing in Hebrew? Yeah. So I, I knew the Hebrew for that too, because the prayer book that I had at that time was transliterated. So there's the Hebrew in the Hebrew characters text, I guess, which if you don't know how to read it, you can't read, but then it's transliterated into English letters and then there's a translation. So I'm seeing, you know, oh, okay, here's the Hebrew and I want to sing it in Hebrew, but here's what it means. And we, so the way we would do it originally is we would sing it in Hebrew first and then in English. Um, and so it meant a lot to me to be able to sing the Hebrew because it's, you know, this very sacred language. Um, but I have to know what I'm saying, you know, or at least right. essentially what I'm singing about. Um, Do you think that singing in a different language also helps you tap into a different part of yourself? Like, do you mm -hmm. think, um, did you begin to learn Hebrew? I did. Um, not because I thought I was going to become a rabbi or anything. I just thought, oh, you know, I, this is interesting. I want to learn it. And I want to teach my daughter the alphabet, which is the Hebrew alphabet. Um, so, yeah. And I think you're right that as much as I wanted the English translation, there was something like two things were going on at the same time. I want the intellectual rigor of understanding what this prayer is and sort of engaging with it in a way that is helpful to my life and what I'm dealing with, but sort of the Hebrew and not necessarily knowing what each word meant. You know, I knew like, oh, this prayer is about getting help from some unseen source, but I don't know which word is what, right? So there's something, a different part of your being and brain gets activated when you're just in a much more sensory and receptive mode like oh I'm just hearing the Hebrew now hearing these different sounds I don't really know what they mean but but you can be present in a different way where your mind isn't trying to figure things out right like I wanted both I want my mind to be trying to figure it out and I want to just receive this and see where it takes me in a more you know and through my senses yeah I think that's something I've been trying to practice and develop a little bit more or like get out of the way of mm -hmm. a little bit more is I am definitely, I think and think, and I love to read, like I'll, I'll read spiritual books all day about mm -hmm. prayer and meditation and all this experiential stuff. But when it comes time to actually experience and to drop down into my body, like I have to, I think I have to be a little more disciplined about actually just practicing that because it isn't comfortable for me and it's not my inclination but over time, I've learned I'm never going to find all of these answers. Like, it's great to ask all these questions, but ultimately, I have to be able to drop into a place that is, again, like you can't all you can't speak all of it, you know. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Is that something that has been important to your journey? Like, are you able to tap into that space in an intuitive way? Is that more difficult for you? What does that look like? And this, again, is why I love Judaism so much and not to say that these things aren't available in other traditions, but there's just something about Judaism that brings it all together for me. Um, because it does have the intellectual rigor, which I, I totally want and need, but there are so many ways to engage other parts of my being and my brain, um, you know, through chanting and there's, there are a lot of, um, Jewish meditative practices. And I think what I like about them is that it's not just sitting and focusing on the breath in the traditional, like sort of a pasana way, which is intense. That takes a lot of 
discipline and I, my mind is like pretty active and, um, jumps around a lot. Um, I think that's probably pretty normal, but, um, with some of the Jewish meditative practices is there, there are these specific focal points that help someone like me with an overactive mind drop in, you know, so you might, I might be meditating on a Hebrew letter or the letters that make up God's name. And there's a breathing practice where you can actually breathe in the sounds of God's name, which sound like the wind or your own breathing. And I, I kind of need that. I need a little bit more of the, focal point that anchors, I think, than just like, oh, I'm going to sit and just watch my breath and my thoughts. Like, that's really hard for me. I think it's hard for everyone. But. Yeah. Yeah. But it is, that is something that I think, like I know for myself, I'll get stuck on, well, that type of meditation, that's, that's, it's really, really hard for me. So it must be what I need to learn to do. Mm-hmm. And like, mm-hmm. sometimes it doesn't have to be the path of most resistance, right? Like mm-hmm, sometimes you can mm-hmm. follow. There is actually a really beautiful concept in a form of Catholic spirituality called Ignatian spirituality. And St. Ignatius of Loyola said that desire is a good thing that comes from God to lead mm-hmm. us towards what we are supposed to be doing in the world. And so we shouldn't mm-hmm. be afraid of our desire. We should follow it. Which mm-hmm. is kind of like, I think people think desire is like the opposite of Catholicism, <laughs> you know? Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. I, that's been something interesting for me to think about lately is maybe it doesn't have to be the path of most resistance or the most difficult thing or this slog. Maybe it can be following things that, that feel really right and joyful and that work that ultimately work for me because if I'm trying to force myself to do something that I'm just not going to do, then what's the point? <laughs> you know? Exactly. I was curious if you have a favorite Hebrew word um, or a favorite Hebrew word of the moment and um, what it is, what it means and, and why you're drawn to it. Hmm. Well, the first one that comes to mind, I don't know if that means it's my favorite or if it's just on my mind, but, um, it's the word chai or chayim. You've probably heard people say l'chayim, right, um, to life. And it's it makes that cha sound at the beginning, which is not always easy to pronounce. Um, but it means life. And one of the things that's interesting about it is that chai is like the singular and chayim is plural. And just the idea that like there's a singular and a plural form of it's it's, because it's different than life and lives it's not like that it's literally life Chaim is also my husband's Hebrew name so that that has special significance to me but I just feel like there's such an emphasis um on choosing life like that's it's a biblical passage um it actually came up at the, the bar mitzvah that we both just attended um about blessing and curses you know choose well choose life um that um, the Torah is referred to as a tree of life, Eitz Chaim, you know, it's a tree of life. Um, And just this idea that we all exist because the breath of life, which in my being, I believe comes from one source, that's kind of that one God idea, just that the whole existence of the cosmos is this breathing, pulsing life that animates all 
living things like you and me and trees. And it, you know, and the reason that we're alive is that there's this high, this force that's breathed through all of us. Um, that is really from one source, um, so that we're all connected. When we were at the bar mitzvah and there's that beautiful moment when, um, do you call the, the person who is, whose bar mitzvah it is, do you call them the bar mitzvah? Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I, I'll just call him the bar mitzvah. <laughs> mm-hmm. He used his, his drone to drop on mm-hmm. the crowd these little owls that he had cut out. And they said each each owl had written on it either I choose joy or I choose love or I think I choose kindness and I choose mm-hmm. life. Mm-hmm. And I remember... I wanted to pick one to um, to be kind of like my intention, I guess. Mm-hmm. And I was thinking, you know, in the past, I probably would have gone straight for I choose love. Mm-hmm. And something in me was like, I want to I want to choose life. Mm-hmm. Um, and part of it, I feel like is as a girl, at least my experience was often um being presented with romantic love and relationships as like the the pinnacle I guess Mm -hmm. (laughs) and Mm -hmm. um and those things are all really important and really great but I realized there was something about reflecting on that word and how it's not necessarily dependent on any relationship or any external thing right Mm -hmm. it reminded me of um reading Mrs. Dalloway by Virginia Mm. Woolf in school. There's just a great line where she says something like what she loved was simply life. Mm -hmm. Um, So all those things kind of bubbled up for me when you were talking about that word. Yeah. And I think that, um, like you said, you know, like that part of us that wants to go, Oh, I choose joy or love or kindness, right. Which are these positively laden things, right. Mm -hmm. Um, Life. You know, when I think of life, I don't think of it as always being, you know, awesome right. <laughs> or perfect. Like right. life is intense and it's it can be very messy and it's, you know, life well lived means that we we live to our fullest and when things come up that aren't maybe what we think we would choose. I mean, I, I can look back now on my life and see that everything that I thought was negative or horrible at the time was actually a blessing and has made me who I am and I wouldn't change anything. Um, and I think that's what life is, which I'm thinking of that my other favorite Jewish word, which is, or Hebrew word, which is, um, it's probably too cliche to say this, but the word shalom, cause it's very similar. So shalom usually is translated as peace. And people say it when like hello, goodbye, kind of like aloha, like, Hello, goodbye, and peace. But its root, um, which is those sounds, the the shin, the lamed, and the mem sound, is really about wholeness um, or completeness, Mm. which for me, and this has been a really powerful teaching, includes everything. It's kind of like the yin-yang symbol, right? Like, Like nothing is all white. Nothing is all black. You know, even the darkest moment has a flicker of light in it. And, And the most high, amazing potency, brilliant moments have their little shadow speck in there. Right. And like that, and Shalom really means that it's, it's a a total completeness that acknowledges everything. And my conception currently of God in Judaism is that God is, um, we actually said this prayer at the bar mitzvah that God is maker of 
light and darkness. Like God, God includes everything. God is not just good and lightness. God, God is all. And when we try to split off, you know, like, oh, bad, I'm not going to engage with bad. Um, that's not what we're here for. And that's not like what life is either. You know, life includes things like being sick and growing from that or having relationships that fall apart and growing from that. Um, yeah. So yeah. I think those are my two favorite Hebrew words, shalom and chai or chayim. For me, as a little girl, I had this sense of like happily ever after and tying mm-hmm. things up with a bow and things mm-hmm. being perfect or being all rosy. And it is kind of like a growing up thing to to be like, oh, I'm a woman who loves life is like mm-hmm. a very different uh, conception now of even just mm-hmm. myself and what I want. And yeah, I love how you described that it's not just about the good stuff. It's about accepting everything as, as best you can and, mm-hmm. um, and understanding that there are so many different shades. And I love what you said about how, yes, there's not just good that can be found in, in painful things, but also there's sometimes some sadness and happiness or, mm-hmm. yeah. At what point in your journey did you start to get this inclination of, I think I want to apply to, <laughs> is it rabbinical school? Is that mm-hmm. what you call it? Yeah. Well, so the trajectory went like, okay, this is really cool. I'm really feeling like this is a tradition that I want to raise my daughter in to like, wow, I really like this for myself. And then my rabbi at the time, you know, said, I think you might want to think about converting. And at at the time I didn't feel like I was ready. Um, and then there came a time when I was like, yeah, I think I'm ready to convert. Um, and then, um, then we moved from where we lived down to the Bay area and I joined a conservative synagogue, which was much more rigorous on the, the Hebrew and the, like just expectation that, that you would, know what's happening and not, you know, need so much teaching or explanation. And that, that was a huge learning curve for me. Um, but then I met with my rabbi at the time and said, you know, I'm kind of ready to figure out the next Jewish thing I want to learn. And he said, Oh, you know, after much discussion, he said, I think the next step for you is an adult bat mitzvah. There's a chanting that that comes along with it, you know, reading out of a Torah in front of people. Like at that point, I did not see myself as somebody who, wanted to get up in front of people and, and lead in any kind of way. I just, but something in me knew that that was the right thing to do, but I had no idea at all how I was going to be able to pull it off. Um, I was very nervous. I even, I can still remember walking up to the, the, the Bima, which is where you read from um, to read. And I thought I was going to faint or throw up or something. Um, but something happened. Like as soon as I got there and the, use this pointer to read out of the Torah. It's called a yod, which means hand, but it's like this metal pointer. As soon as that kind of hit the Torah scroll, because you don't touch it with your hand, like this other person, the one that likes to sing in synagogue, you know, that I didn't know who that person was, but this other person like totally (laughs) took over or showed up or something. And um, I was like, oh, that was interesting. I mean, I was still nervous, but like there was just this transfer formational moment that happened that was like, Oh, that's interesting. Like I kind of noted it, but I still didn't think it meant anything. Um, I was like, Oh, I want to do more of that. You know, even though I was still really scared. So I was doing more of that. And then, um, on a couple visits back to our former synagogue, um, where I was helping lead 
some services and with assisting with a bat mitzvah in a very peripheral way. Um, I got up to present the bat mitzvah girl um, with her talit. A talit is a prayer shawl. She'd had one custom made um, and it had a tree on it and that meant things to her. And so I just got, I don't even think I spoke for more than a minute. And then four separate people came up to me unrelated to each other and un, you know they didn't know that the other people had spoken to me and they each said have you ever thought about being a rabbi wow. i really think you should be a rabbi i was really moved by you i really connected with you do you think you might ever want to be a rabbi and it was like oh that's like that's weird like <laughs> i don't really know where that's coming from i'm but i just didn't think i could do it given how late in the game i had come to it and that you know, Hebrew is a major component of this. And while I can read it and understand a lot of it, like it's not a fluency thing for me. Um, and just Judaism is like, it's been around for thousands of years and it has a vast like kind of corpus of texts and knowledge that I'm just like, there's no way. Like, it's intimidating. <laughs> it's very intimidating. And I feel like I'm just like scratching the surface. How long had it been from when you first visited a synagogue? So like maybe eight or nine years Okay. Um, of just sort of being involved and, mm-hmm. you know, oh, let's observe the Jewish calendar and let's experiment with keeping kosher. And um, But suddenly, like with those comments and just fe- feeling something, um, I realized I would be up late at night, like on different websites for rabbinical ordination. It's like, Oh, okay. Mm. Spending like an hour digging into this. Um, and I I got very intimidated by it. It's like, uh, you know, some of the requirements were like, I'll never get there. I'll never get there. But more, more of this started happening where people were, I had friends in our former town where we, where we went to the synagogue for the first time who were kind of pushing me on it. Um, I think it was 2015. Um, the month of Elul, which precedes the Jewish High Holy Days, which is all about kind of return and atonement and repairing things that we've, you know, messed up and coming clean with God. Um, but the whole month before that, you do a lot of internal soul searching. And it's like, okay, I need to I need to get my head around this rabbinical school idea. Um, so I spent that month really reflecting on it. And there I knew and I made a list of things that I had to do to see if it was going to be right. And I wanted to get blessings from my two rabbis, the one who was at the first synagogue we went to, and then the current rabbi that I had. And I, you know, kind of printed out all the ordination materials and it's like, all right. And my first rabbi, she was the one who was actually doing some of the pushing about, you know, continued Jewish leadership. Um, So I knew I had her blessing, but my, my second rabbi who um, is a very kind of high powered, brilliant Rabbi, he's the one who got me to have my adult bat mitzvah. I, I went to him and ended up like crying as I expressed what I wanted to do. And um, he said, yeah, I've known this about you. What oh, can wow. I do? What, what can I do to help you? Uh, um, and I said, well, you know, you can write me a letter for, I have to have a letter. <laughs> um, and so when he said that, because you know, I have a lot of insecurity still. Um, I mean, it's less and less all the time, but I still have a fair amount of insecurity. But I thought that he might say something like, I never thought he would be mean or disrespectful, but I thought he might say something like, you know, let's maybe look at some other paths because, you know, given your age and, you know, what it takes and that you have a family and you work full time. I mean, I have some obstacles. I I work full time. I have two daughters. I mean, it's, it's not easy. Um, but the fact that he, um, so quickly said, yeah, I've, I've seen this in you. Um, 
it's like, okay, well. When I was thinking about having this conversation, I was just thinking, man, there must have been so many excuses or reasons you could have given yourself as to why you shouldn't Mm -hmm. (laughs) start this path being a wife and a mother of two daughters and you have a job, a full-time job, right? Um, I'm in my late 40s at the time. Right now I'm 50. It's like, what? who starts a second, you know, career path at 50 or 48 or whatever? Um, I think it's awesome. Even for me now, I'm in my late 20s. I'm not married. I don't have kids. I don't own a home. You know, like I find it's taken me years to just to start this podcast <laughs> because mm-hmm. there's always reasons not to. Yes. Because it does feel like when it's something that you're, you're really, really drawn to, that the reasons are more excuses than reasons. Like, not that it's mm-hmm. not genuinely really difficult, I'm sure, and a lot to balance, but they might be more rooted in fear of failing or fear mm-hmm. of not being good enough or mm-hmm. something like that. Did that rise mm-hmm. up in you? Definitely. Constantly. Um, and then I have a friend from work who's actually um, an Episcopal priest, and I wasn't telling her that I wanted to apply for this program. We were talking about something else and she just happened to say, but it was like, this was actually the final thing that I needed to hear. God doesn't call the equipped. God equips the called. Mm. And um, like, even as I'm saying it right now, like I just got very emotional. It's like, Oh, okay. This is a calling. This is not about, um, you know, having a resume that's perfect or whatever. Right. This is like a deep, deep calling. And, after I wrote my spiritual autobiography, which is one of the main components of the application process for the program I applied to, like every single thing that I ended up writing about, like from those early days where I wanted to have that experience of accepting Jesus as my personal savior in the room with the evangelical priest guy. Um, I'm probably not even using the right titles, sorry. Um, (laughs) To, you know, those early inklings of, you know, just wishing that we were doing something in my family, like everything suddenly like made sense when she said that God doesn't call the equipped, God equips the called. And when I wrote the spiritual autobiography, like all the pieces made sense. The fact that I got a master's degree in transpersonal psychology, and I'm not sure if you know what that is, but that's the more, like it takes into consideration a person's spiritual interior Mm -hmm. sort of relationship with God. Right. 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 That you wouldn't stop there. Like that, that's a major piece in doing counseling with people. Um, I didn't even really totally know why I was doing that. I knew that I was into spirituality at the time. It's like, Oh, cool. You know, and I actually had a degree in psychology and thought that I wanted to be a therapist, but the more that I was just doing regular therapy training, I was, um, get, was ready to get my MFCC. I was like halfway through my intern hours. It's like, this just does, there's something about it that Mm, feels too clinical. Mm -hmm. It's too clinical. It's too, right. I want to talk about these other things. I didn't even really realize that I wanted to talk about those other things, meaning the spiritual dimension. Um, I just knew that it felt too, you know, Oh, in a 50 minute hour, right? Like, Oh, and, and even when I would go to my own therapy sessions, it's like, well, I'm not really feeling the thing that I was feeling three days ago when I, I really know. could have used a therapy session. Exactly. I, I read a book about transpersonal psychology because I was applying to a program. And even in finding a therapist, I've always been like, I feel like the clinical stuff goes to a certain level and is really great and really helpful, but it's not quite getting to the core Mm-hmm. of what I'm trying to get to. So mm-hmm. I know like exactly what you're 
I, yeah. I feel that so much. <laughs> yeah. And I realized after writing the spiritual autobiography, like, oh, I wasn't supposed to be a therapist. And therapists, like that career path is wonderful and beautiful yeah. and we need mm-hmm. that. It just was like, oh, I'm supposed to be like a clergy person. I'm supposed to be a pastoral rabbinic presence, which is a different way of sitting with people in times of need or crisis. Um, that isn't so much on a 50 minute hour or like when you have your appointment scheduled, it's like if someone calls and they need you, you know, they need you to come and do a hospital visit, you know, a therapist wouldn't do that, but that's what a rabbi would do. And like, that's more how I'm wired. Um, so it all was like, Oh, this makes so much sense now. Yeah. it, It just made sense to me. Like all the choices that I had made again, it's like, Oh, I mean, sometimes I look back and think, God, I wish I had gotten a degree in, you know, religious studies or comparative religion. But I think I needed all that psychology background and Mm -hmm. kind of that discernment around like, no, not this kind of um, counseling or sitting with somebody, but this kind um, with the spiritual thread through it. Um, So I don't, I really don't think I could have done it any other way than the exact way that I did it. Yeah. So I'm curious, like what, what you see as your role as a rabbi and how has it impacted your your spirituality that's a good question um i mean there's so many different things to do as a rabbi you know you can be a congregational rabbi and parts of that look really wonderful and parts of it look very um you know there's a lot of other pieces you have to deal with like boards and fundraising and um Money stuff. (laughs) Money stuff. Um, You know, a lot of rabbis end up being educators or teachers. There's chaplaincy work, which, and pastoral work, which I think is what calls me the most. Mm -hmm. Um, But I have to say, like, the the bar mitzvah that you and I just attended, um, like, I I don't know how to say this. I feel like that's some of the best work in quotes that I did because it doesn't feel like work at all. And I think that's, Mm -hmm why it's the best work, because first of all, I just love it. But because of my unique background, being someone who didn't grow up with a lot of religious training, who is a Jew by choice, like I'm choosing this fully consciously, I don't bring baggage with it. Um, I think I'm uniquely positioned to work with the kind of, you know, kind of like more maybe in interfaith settings. Um, I, I have a lot of flexibility in my Jewish understanding so that to do an innovative, different service that maybe isn't even in a synagogue, right? Or doesn't include all the things that technically maybe you're supposed to include. Um, but that it's like looking at who's, who, who the family is and the people that are coming and creating something that is going to, first of all, work for the, the family and the bar mitzvah himself. Like that, like if, if they're not engaged, that, then what are you doing, right? Because so many bar and bat mitzvah kids just are not engaged and they don't know what's going on and not connected to it. Um, and that is a, a moment where you can really turn people off to being Jewish. Um, and they kind of run for the hills after that. Um, not all the time, but a lot of time. I've heard a lot of stories about that. Um, so that's a key moment of bringing someone closer to their their tradition. Um but also recognizing in an interfaith situation, perhaps that there are going to be people at an event like that, that either don't know, they don't know anything that's going on and you don't want to alienate people by having it be too much Hebrew. But, but then there are people there who are, are pretty Jewish and they want 
the traditional. So crafting something, and that's the part where I just felt like it was so fun. What's something that you're learning or growing into about your faith um, right now? Hmm. Sometimes I get very frustrated that I don't have enough years to master the breadth and depth of Judaism the way I would like to. Um, on the other hand, I realize, you know, because there's a lot of Judaism that's um, not repetitive, but that's cyclical, right? So in a year's time, we will go through a whole reading of the Torah, and then we will start again, right? And we're about to start again. And I actually am thankful, like the more that I learn, and it's like, oh, yeah, I've heard that before. I already know, you know, that Hasidic story. It's like, thank God there is so much depth here, because the more I learn, it's like, I, I actually could see that if it was a much more limited amount, you could get a little bored, right? Mm -hmm. So the fact that there's actually, I, I never could master it. This is a beautiful thing, right? Because there's so many different ways to look at it and, and approach it. And so I think it's not so much, um, I'm learning to be comfortable with what, the amount that I'm going to be able to learn and not be frustrated by that and to just immerse myself as much as possible in the things that are currently interesting to me. Um, and the other thing that I realized about myself, and so I'm, I hope I'm not veering too much about this, is that what is what continues to grab my attention the most in all of the ways that you could do Judaism or learn about Judaism is liturgy. So, you know, that's what, what happens when you pray, you know, the structure of the prayers and that, that is what gets me the most on fire. Um, like I could just sit with my prayer book all day. And so this is probably where I want to penetrate the deepest is into just learning more and more about liturgy and how to pray and how to be in services and how to lead people in services to a meaningful experience when they're praying in a sort of communal setting. Is there like a little, a little bit of prayer that we could lead uh, leave off with? Well, let me, this isn't so much a prayer as a piece of, um, this is from the Song of Psalms, and it has to do with where we are in the month of Elul that I was mentioning that leads up to the High Holy Days. Elul, when it's spelled with the Hebrew letters, is an acronym for the Hebrew phrase, Ani Lidodi Vidodi Li, which means I am my beloved and my beloved is mine which is sort of the sentiment of the season as we attempt to do this thing called Teshuva, which is returning to God, but really returning to our original source. You know, because in a year's time, you veer very far from that, right? You yeah. get off track, and this is the time of year where we're trying to get back on track. Like, okay, what what is all of this about? What is my life about? What is my spiritual connection oh, I've made some messes, I need to clean those up because I can't really connect with my highest self or with the Holy One or however we want to phrase that until I kind of get that stuff cleaned up. Um, and so we get a whole month to do that. But the fact that the month, the name of the month, is this acronym for that exact process, I am my beloved and my beloved is mine. That's used a lot in um, like weddings, um, but this time of year, we talk about how we're having a wedding with God. We're reuniting with the infinite source that birthed us. I love it. Thank you. This has been beautiful and 
exactly what I hoped for and more. (laughs) Well, I so appreciate that you wanted to have a conversation with me about the things that are meaningful to me. So I appreciate that. If you liked the episode, I hope that you'll share it and subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and leave a review. It helps people to find the podcast. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you'll join me next time.